When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 10th, the Why Isn't My Kids Teacher Returning My Texts edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm an editor at Slate. I'm the dad of Lyra, who is 11, and Harper, who is 9. We are recording on Election Day, Tuesday Election Day. We have not yet found out if last episode's Hillary celebration totally jinxed everything. But I have found out that Slate's news director, Allison Benedict, is a little busy right now. So joining me from Durham, North Carolina, is a special guest host. Hello. Hello. I'm Amy Scott, a middle school English teacher and single mom by choice of Arlo and Patrick, who turned two not long ago. Oh, happy birthday, Arlo and Patrick. Thank you. On today's episode, we'll talk about Asher Nash, a boy with Down syndrome, who's now, after a viral Facebook post, going to appear in Carter's ads this holiday season. Plus, we'll debate how much information a teacher ought to give parents during the school year. Plus, recommendations, triumphs and fails, and a listener call about a racist neighbor. But first, listeners, head on over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. It's where listeners, uh, for the last couple weeks, have been posting some great stuff, photos of their kids and their Halloween costumes, uh, pictures that their kids drew of what a president looks like. That turned out really interestingly, and more. Plus, uh... I hear if we get 500 more likes this week, Slate lets us out of our podcast cages for fresh air and sunlight. So head on over, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. We really appreciate the likes. It's a great way to let people know about the show. So let's start today with triumphs and fails. Amy, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I have a fail that ties into your discussion with the screen time expert last episode. Um, You're already failing even at the new recommendations? Here's the thing. Okay. I don't have a TV, and I know that I sound insufferable when I say that, but I grew up without almost any TV, and I want to let people know, parents know, that that is a complete fuck-up. Um, because that... <laughs> like not letting your kids watch TV is screwed up? Yes. Yes. Because that taboo did what taboos do, and it made me a complete addict. And so when I got to college where there was a TV in the lounge, in the dorm room, or, you know, later in my housemate's room, I would literally flip channels for 10 hours a day sometimes. Like, I had I had never developed a governor on my TV-watching internal <laughs> mechanism or whatever, and I'd never had any deep discussions about appropriate consumption of TV. I just grew up with the idea that TV was bad, and you shouldn't watch it, and you couldn't watch it, except for one half-hour show on a 13-inch black-and-white screen. 
if you'd done all your homework and practiced your musical instrument and cleaned your room and done your chores, which, as we all know, is impossible, so I never got to watch it. So I don't have a TV in my house. My kids did hit the two-year mark with no screen time, and I was going to count that as a triumph, but as you mentioned last week, the AAP has now lifted the two-year ban. So here's where that my doesn't comes retroactively in. make that not a triumph. Though. You still like succeeded <laughs> okay, okay, at that okay, thing. First. Okay, but this is where the fail comes in. A few weeks ago, I showed Patrick The Incredibles on my laptop, and he loves it. And he asks for kettlebells all the time now. Kettlebells, kettlebells, and yeah. I let him watch it <laughs> all the time. He's probably watched it a dozen times or more in the last three weeks, and. I will probably have to do some sort of regulation in the future, but right now I'm just reveling in my failure because it is so much easier to get stuff done when your child is being babysat by a screen. It really, it really is. This is, I mean, this is the whole point that last episode, like, yeah, like the, the admonition not to use a screen as a babysitter is really easy to say when you're not the one who just really like needs a fucking babysitter, like right now, like right at this exact moment. Um, and I have on the to other say, hand, like, I, they're, yeah, the the Incredibles is a great movie. Yes, totally. Yeah, and and yeah. the times that I have sat down and watched it with him, it's been really fun, and we talk about it and stuff. But sometimes he just needs to watch it so I can cook dinner. Um, you know what? It's a baby fail. You okay. got through those two years. You don't even have a TV in your house. You're only showing him a high quality Pixar animation film. <laughs> Uh, I feel like there's room still for you to fail further on the screen time <laughs> front. You're only at the beginning of all the failures that screen time will soon bring to you. Uh, and you shouldn't worry about this one. Okay. Thanks. I hope that makes you feel better. I feel great. <laughs> I feel great Good. about my fail. Uh, all right. I also have a fail this week. Um, and it's one I'm hoping that you can uh, maybe talk me through a little bit, given your expertise as a teacher. Um, my fail is that I am just not good at helping my kids with their homework. So the, the, the story here is that last night, Harper asked me to help her with her homework. And that and the homework she had to do, she has very little homework um, in fourth grade. Her school is, is, is by design a low homework school, which I think is pretty great overall. But she had a little bit of homework, which was for her music class where she's learning clarinet. And they were supposed to record a short video of themselves playing a note on the clarinet for eight seconds and then submit it through Google Classroom on their iPad. And, of course, I hate their school iPads, and that's a whole another story. But it's a simple enough assignment, right? So we set up, and she's standing in the living room, and I start recording her, and she plays the note. And goes great. It takes like 10 seconds total. But then she looks at the video and she's like, my hair looks weird. So she wants to do it again. So I'm like, okay, fine. So she plays the note for eight seconds. And then she watches the video and she's like, oh, that, I didn't, I should have played a different note. So then I'm like, okay, Jesus, Harper, let's go. But I record her again. This time she misses the note the first time and she giggles and then she hits the note and I'm like, oh, that's so cute. And then she watches it and she is flabbergasted that I would ever think she would turn in a video to her teacher in which she missed the note the first time, but then got it later. And at this point, I'm just like, Harper, oh my God, you do not need to be a perfectionist on this eight second assignment for your fourth grade music class. You can just turn it in. Your teacher will be totally fine with it. And she goes, no, no, I have to do it again. And I'm like, fine, Harper. Okay. 
I'm done. Do it yourself. Which leads to like this like half hour of frustration and tears and stubbornness on her part and and led to like great remorse on my part that, yes, she was being ridiculous about this thing, but I cannot help but notice that something like this seems to happen a lot of the time when I help them with homework. It's like they struggle for some reason. Um, and it's some reason that like, doesn't make sense to me. And then I get annoyed, but what I'm really getting annoyed with them about is just that they're not doing it the way that I would do it. And I don't mean like they're not doing the math the way that I would do the math. I understand that they do the math in some scientifically advanced way that I can never understand, but it's more that they're just like doing the whole thing. Their overall method is not something I can relate to. So like Harper just takes forever and is too much of a stickler about things. And that drives me crazy. And Lyra conversely rushes through things. And that drives me crazy. And homework like distressingly often turns into this like pressure filled power debate. So it seems to me like I need to fucking chill out that if Harper (laughs) wants to retake her video, she can do it. She can even do it on her own. I don't have to help her, but I don't have to be a dick about it. Uh, I can tell her that without being a dick about it. And I and I am vowing to try to be a little more accepting of their ways of doing homework when helping them with it. I think I can do it, but I would like to know from you, middle school teacher Amy Scott, uh, am I unique in having trouble helping kids with homework? Or do you see this like a lot from parents in the class that they find this a struggle? Well, first, I I support you in your quest. I think you can do it. Um, My question for you, though, is um, do you think that consciously or subconsciously that they are doing their homework in a way that irks you because they know that it will maintain your attention? Oh, man, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, I don't think they want – I mean – I don't think Lyra, for example, wants my attention during homework. She wishes no one would ever come over and oversee or look at or help her with her homework at all, even if she definitely needs the help. Um, and Harper responded badly enough that I don't, I don't know that it's like a subconscious thing on their part, um, although it would take a, a team of psychoanalysts trudging through the, <laughs> the Antarctic of our various subconsciouses to really dig that out. Yeah, it's just – I just find it to be such a – So many of my interactions with my kids feel easy. Obviously, not all of them, and obviously fewer and fewer of them as they get uh, older and more adolescent. But like, still a lot of my interactions with them feel not that hard. They come naturally to me, but it's the process of doing homework with them is the sort of the most unnatural seeming thing, even though I had sort of assumed going into it that that would be something I would be good at doing as a parent. So to find myself so hilariously bad at it really is a... Puts a damper on my self-image as like a smart guy <laughs> who can help his kids. Uh, all right. Yeah. I'm going to do my damnedest, Harper and Lyra, if you're listening, uh, not to be a jerk to you while helping you with your homework. But also, Harper, you really can just turn in the first video that you shoot. <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, moving on to our first segment. Asher Nash lives in Buford, Georgia, and is 15 months old. He's a very, very cheerful kid who seems to really love the camera. So his mom, Megan Nash, submitted him for a modeling gig with Carter's, the uh, adorable sleep and daywear collection. Uh, but the agent casting the shoot did not pass Asher's photo along to the Carter's people because Asher has Down syndrome. And the photo call wasn't specifically for children with special needs. So Megan posted her story to Facebook. It caught the attention of Down syndrome advocacy groups. And now, a couple of weeks later, Asher has met executives from Carter's parent company, Oshkosh Bagash, and Asher will be part of the company's Christmas ad shoot. So reading the story made me realize just how invisible kids with disabilities can be in popular culture. Amy, you're the mom of a child with Down syndrome. I imagine, as such, you're pretty attuned to this. So what did you think of this story of Megan and Asher's push to uh, get him into a clothing advertisement? I loved it. Um, I was so excited to see this all over Facebook. Of course, a bunch of people shared it with me because they know that I have a, a, a child with Down syndrome. Um, and, you know, first of all, this boy, if you saw the pictures of him he is ridiculously cute like he's really he's quite so cute. yeah oh my gosh he's so photogenic he's charming he's perfect and there's you know in my view there's no reason why he shouldn't be featured in advertisements because he's as cute as if not cuter than other kids his age um but also I mean, obviously not yes, cuter than your children amy i mean he's close i mean arlo's <laughs> really really cute so, um, I mean, I think that Arlo could totally be an Oshkosh Bagosh baby, too. Um, but that is possible. I'm biased. But the visibility piece is really, really important to me. I mean, I, we just don't see people with disabilities represented in advertisements and shows um, as often or significantly as they are visible in our lives. So I loved it. I thought it was a great story, and I was glad that she pushed the issue, and I'm glad that he's going to be featured in their ads. I think it's going to be amazing. Uh, it's funny that you note that, you, you know, you think Arlo's cute enough, but you're a little bit biased. I have this very vivid memory of when Lyra was like a year and a half, and she was just like a very chubby, happy toddler, and I became convinced that she was so beautiful that, in fact, she would be great for baby modeling, though, of course, I would never do that. I would never subject my child to that. But I just wanted confirmation from people that they agreed that she was so yeah. cute that she could do baby modeling. So I asked my brother, uh, I was like, you know, of course, I would never actually put her up for this. But don't you agree that Lyra is just so cute that she could totally be a baby model? And <laughs> my brother just said, I mean, it's probably good that you're not putting her up for it. <laughs> Which is, which is when I learned that my opinion of my child was possibly biased. Um, it's a little, a little uh, skewed. I mean, I do. I look skewed. at pictures from, from you know, a year ago and thought that they were, the, like, the cutest things ever. And I'm like, I mean, they are super cute. But there is some sort of weird hormone in parents that, right. you know, transforms your, your, your children into. Right. It's the same hormone that makes them not throw them off buildings when they're being horrible. Exactly. Uh, so are there, this made me think a lot about, like. About just about how seldom it is, I feel like I see kids with different kinds of disabilities in any kind of media, but advertising particularly. Part of the benefit of of like a campaign like this, like the one that Megan Nash um, did for her son, is is not just that 
seeing a kid with Down syndrome in, you know, a Carter's catalog or an Oshkosh Gosh catalog or something, it's not just that that is great for the self-image and and the connection of families with kids with Down syndrome. But I imagine that, I mean, part of what helps and is useful about it is that it normalizes the lives of kids with Down syndrome for everyone who's looking at that, that the more people you see who are different from you out in the world and in the media, the more it becomes part of your life and the less likely you are to view them as like others or yep. uh, or not worth really like thinking about in any major way. But the, but because of how seldom it happens, because of how seldom I see it, I think a lot about the ways that, for example, I respond when I meet someone with disabilities for the first time. And when someone new meets Arlo, how do people tend to treat him and how do people tend to treat you? And are you, do you find that you are hypersensitive to that or have you had to like try and tamp down your hypersensitivity so you're not annoyed all the time? No, I, I, I am not, I don't think that I'm sensitive or at least I'm definitely not annoyed because what usually happens for me is that adults see him and they're like, oh my God, he is so cute because he is. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, and they mostly want to hold him, but of course he's in this, you know, mommy only phase right now. So he's a little, a little shy, but they, I mean, most, most people fall in love with him and he will wave and he will blow kisses, which is super charming. So people just, right. you know, fall over about that. And then with kids, um, you know, we were at the playground the other day and these kids came over and, you know, they started asking about him. And I think they noticed that something was different. These were probably kids who were seven or eight. And and they asked about him. And I, you know, did my best, um, you know, second grade, second grade reading level version of what Down syndrome is and sort of it's the a chromosomal and, differential. And I know, right. <laughs> Exactly. So, um, but they were, they were very interested and they too wanted, they're like, can we hold him? And, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that, um, you know, there is a sweetness about him and about a lot of people with Down syndrome that is, is very attractive and, um, it's disarming in a way, right? It's disarming. It's disarming. Amy, before you had Arlo, um, what role, if any, did kids with disabilities or kids with Down syndrome have in your life? And did you have this a vision of yourself as a parent that changed substantially as a result of having a son with Down syndrome? Or do you still view your the way you parent as being sort of the same it always would have been, just with a different kind of kid at the at the center of it? Well, like with most parents, I never imagined that I would have a child with disabilities. It was just not something that I pictured. I pictured my kids, you know, typical. Um, and so, you know, I struggled when I when I first got the diagnosis. I was 16 weeks pregnant. And um, you know about this. I... I, I you, you blogged about it quite interestingly I, and moving. I blogged. I, I blogged about it. I really, really strongly considered... Uh, selective reduction um, because I didn't because I didn't know anybody with Down syndrome I didn't know what it would be like and um, and a lot of people who have a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome do abort um, and it it definitely had 
changed me as a person, being able to make that choice, first of all. Um, And second of all, becoming a parent, the most interesting thing to me is that, um, this is kind of cliche, but I don't see that there's anything, like anything wrong with him. Like he does not, he does not occur to me as somebody who has anything wrong. Um, And it's, you know, what's interesting is I do have this control group of Patrick who walks and talks and, you know, uh, feeds himself and, you know, all that. Um, I know what a two-year-old normally looks like and uh, and sounds like. And then I have Arlo who um, says a couple syllables, um, can kind of you know, dip a, a spoon into a bowl and sometimes it hits his mouth. Um, he c- can't even crawl yet. And none of that occurs to me as anything wrong with him. He just, it's its literally just that he is different, um, that he is on a different timeline. And, but that the fact that he is different cha- changes his value, not one bit for me. Right. Well, that's a commonplace, right, that we all hear. But I think it'd be hard to really grasp until you have a real person there who is part of your life, who you get that about, as opposed to just a thing you say when you're thinking about disabilities in the abstract. Exactly. And you, you know, I, I, one of the things that sort of tilted the balance for me when I was trying to decide whether to um, have selective reduction or not was, um, you know, I said to my mother, will everybody love him the same? And, of course, I wasn't asking about everybody. I was asking about me. Um, And she said, I love all three of you equally and in different ways, talking about me and my siblings. And she said, and I would imagine it would be the same for the twins. And that is totally what I found to be true. I love them equally mm. and in totally different ways. As every parent does with all of their kids. Yeah. Like, regardless. That's, yep. a, that's a good reminder. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, uh, this is really interesting. So we are going to post an article about Asher on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom, dad are fighting. You should check it out. It will include a picture of him. He's um, 97% as cute as Amy's kids. Um <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, and I'm, I, you know, I'm really excited to see these ads. The kid is really cute. I do think, I do think it really benefits. Um, I think it probably benefits the company definitely to have, to turn this negative publicity into positive publicity, but it also benefits them to have a catalog that like more, that more matches the America to whom it is selling. So I was in a an Oshkosh Bagosh commercial in 1982 as an eight-year-old. Uh, Are you going to get a and, picture um, of that on the Facebook page? Uh, it's possible pictures exist. Uh, maybe I'll post one of those to the Facebook page too. But uh, but it was all but we were all white. Every kid in that ad was white. We were all just like mm-hmm. white smart Alex in that ad. No one had any disabilities or even any melanin. So uh, <laughs> we were not representative of the customer base of Oshkosh Bagosh. So like every step they that every company takes towards doing a better job on that seems like a pretty smart move. And I'm very hopeful. What I'm mostly hopeful for is that this makes other companies realize, oh, like this 
this is a thing we ought to be doing in addition to probably being good for business. It's dumb that we don't do it. And like not, a, we're not being good corporate citizens if we're, if we don't do this. So uh, good work, Megan Nash uh, and good work, Asher Nash on your burgeoning modeling career. Nickelodeon's got your preschoolers covered from sunrise to bedtime with four brand new podcasts. Grab their backpack and go on a culinary quest with Dora's recipe for adventure. Make game time great time with Let's Guess Who with Josh and Blue. And tuck in for adventure with Nickelodeon's Goodnight Bedtime Stories. Plus, we've got a brand new season of Storytime with Josh and Blue. Search Nickelodeon on your favorite podcast app to listen. All right, let's move on to our listener call. If you have a question for us, you should give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Today's question is from Danielle. Hit it, Danielle. Hi, my name is Danielle. I'm a big fan of the show, and I had a question. Um, we recently moved, and we were introduced to a couple that lives around the corner from us. The wife is perfectly fine, but the husband is pretty unpleasant. Uh, not only that, but he's made several severely racist comments towards my son and about our about my son and our ethnic background. Uh, they're pretty heinous. I won't repeat them. When the husband has made these comments, my husband and I have looked at each other with our eyes bulging in shock, but really haven't said anything for whatever reason. We've decided we can no longer be friends with this couple for this reason, but they have continued to ask us to get together. I've dodged their invites a couple of times, but I'm now starting to feel like I should say something. I guess my question is, how do you suggest handling a couple where one partner says pretty inappropriate things? Is it preferable to continue to avoid them in hopes that they get the picture, or is it something you have to deal with head-on and call it a day? Thanks so much. Love the show, and I'll miss you, Dan, when you're gone. Whew, that is, uh, that's tough. Um, uh, welcome to your new town. I hope that you've met other people, Danielle, who are nicer than this dude. Um, this is a hard question, and it's made a little bit harder for me to answer because of one thing you left out of this call, which is, uh, does this couple have kids? I assume if you were introduced to them, um, they do. Like, why would you introduce new parents in a neighborhood to people who don't have kids? Like, what good does that do anyone? But maybe they don't. But let's say, assuming that they do, I do think you're in a little bit of a tough situation because that kid and your kid are presumably going to interact with each other a lot if they live right around the corner. Um, and 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 look, many of us have no people in our lives, no couples in our lives where one partner is great and the other partner is like, ugh, like maybe not this ugh, but pretty ugh. So what can you do about it? What can you do, especially when you're new in town and you don't have as many friends as you might hope for? And I would maybe make a slightly counterintuitive argument um, to try or at least to think about trying to stick it out a little more, um, not with him. I mean, fuck him. He can go to hell. But with her and with the kids, if there are kids in that family, like, and there are ways to engineer such a relationship so that you can avoid that dude, but reach out to the rest of the people in that family who it is totally possible might feel similarly to him as you do. Um you know, you can invite the kid over. You can try going out for coffee with her. If they invite you over, you can just politely defer or find a way to steer it into something that doesn't include him. And now, look, it may be that he injects himself into every social situation and he's toxic and horrible and you just have to cut it off, in which case I would just suggest just cutting it off and not like getting into it because I don't know what the point is to that. But 
I, I would maybe urge you to at least consider finding out a little more about her and where she is at in this relationship and how she feels about the way that her husband speaks and thinks uh, and see if there's like some good you can do. Uh, but maybe that is, I mean, but that's coming from someone who like never has to deal with shit like this. So maybe that's like an easy thing for me to say. And maybe the right answer is just like shut the door and never call them back. Amy, what do you think? I am. I agree. Um, I, well, first, I assumed that the the couple had kids, or at least a kid that was playing with their kid. Um, and I mean, it really sounds like this guy knows what he's saying and who he's saying it to, and that he's doing it on purpose. But maybe he, maybe not. Maybe he doesn't understand the the gravity of what he's saying, or maybe the wife doesn't know how horrific her husband is being as he's saying these things in front of her. Um, and I think that I think that you should say something to her. Um, I would write an email or a text that's to the wife that just said, "Hey, we really enjoyed, you know, hanging out with you and your kid, but when your ha- husband said X, Y, and Z, it hurt our feelings and our kids' feelings, and we don't feel comfortable exposing to our kid to that kind of language." And I would be specific about the comments so there's no confusion. Like when your husband said, you know, and quote, "blah blah horrible um, thing," right. Right. Um, just so there's no confusion about where the boundary is. But yeah, yeah I, I mean, I'm a coward, so I couldn't do that conversation in person. So that's why I would do an email <laughs> or, a, or a text. But if you're very ballsy, you know, go for it. Just, you know, have that conversation with the mom in the park or something. I mean, that's good advice. Like when the time comes, if you when you want to have that conversation, be really specific, whether by text or in in person, be really specific about the thing that the person said so that the conversation can't turn into a, well, I don't think he really meant blah, 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 blah. Like he said this horrible thing. This is the horrible thing he said. We can't have that. Um, But I mean, more broadly, like this question of what to do about couples where uh, where one person is great and the other person is like just such a drag for one reason or another is like the never ending issue uh, I, f- I find among parent friends. Um, and it's so great when you find couples where both people are great, like my couple, or families <laughs> where there's only one parent like your family and that parent is great. Like, great, problem solved. But man, when there's one person in that family who's a fucking asshole, that really screws up like every social dynamic. It makes everything more difficult. <laughs> so funny. I can't think of a situation where I, I mean, I ha- I'm not into the full, you know, play date scene yet or anything. Right. Um, but I can't think of a, I, I'm sure I, I will encounter it for sure. Oh man, um, count yourself lucky. But, yeah, yeah, no, it hasn't come up yet. I mean, it Whatever. hasn't. I'm like, sure there are parents in Arlington like, who are like, "Oh, those Smith Coises, Holly is great," but <laughs> Jesus God Christ, Dan, that guy Dan. Jeez. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go on. No, but I mean, I, I there are definitely from my pre, you know, pre kids days. Like there, are, you know, I've had girlfriends who just aren't, you know, their husbands are, you know, not good enough for them, according to me, arbiter of everything. Um, and yeah, it's 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 really unpleasant because you're constantly thinking, why, why, what are why are these two people together? You know, when yeah, one like of them not is only so why do I have to deal of, with him? Yeah, but what, what does like, it say about you, person I formerly yeah. loved? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Danielle, I mean, so all my advice, you know, overlooks one fact, which is that I'm not the one having racist shit said to me. So if Whatever. Yeah. If you're if you are not into the notion of reaching out or facing 
this person for even one more second, then just cut it off. Um, I do think Amy's advice is good if that's what you decide to do. Um, but leave yourself open to the possibility that there are people in this family who might be worthwhile, even if one person is a total fucking waste of space. And if you've got a question you want us to answer on the air, give us a call at 424-255-7833, and we will do our best to answer it. That's 424-255-RUDE, like that dude was to Danielle and her family. All right, moving on to our second segment. So last week, Amy, I uh, I made a spectacle of myself at Lyra's Middle School because no. I made – no, believe it or not, uh, because I made the mistake of attending – Gifted resource night. So I thought, foolishly, that this uh, would just be a night when parents interested in how the school helps gifted students could get a little info and meet each other and maybe uh, like drink some 7-Up. I should have realized that it would actually be a night when parents would hijack a, like a 50-person meeting in order to brag about their kids and ask very specific questions about their particular incredibly gifted children and demand to know why the school wasn't doing more for them. So the thing, the, the final thing that made me like finally ostentatiously get up and, and like heave a sigh and leave uh, was this demand that a bunch of parents made. Uh, the gifted resource person had already explained that she knew, you know, she knew the parents wanted to know what was going on with their kids, with their very gifted kids. And so she asked all the teachers in every class to communicate with her each week about uh what gifted resources they were offering, what special lessons and assignments they were working with for their gifted students. And she combined those with the things that she coordinated and she did in each class. And then she sent the compiled lists to parents quarterly so they would know. But then a whole bunch of parents were like, well, why do you only send it out quarterly? Or wait, you just, you send that out after they do the lessons with my kid? Or well, so how are we supposed to tell our kids ahead of time what to look for so they get the most out of the gifted resources? And they were so angry at this poor gifted resource lady. Uh, so, Amy, you are a teacher. Middle school, you teach which grade? Sixth grade English. Sixth grade English. So was I right to be all self-righteous and pissed off and, like, take off? Or do these parents have a point? Should, like... Should parents expect to know about lessons before they happen? Is that a reasonable thing for parents to ask? That would be great if we could do that. Um, <laughs> that is just not diplomatic. possible. <laughs> it would. I mean, here's the thing. Our standards change all the time. Uh, the people that we work with change. So, um, you know, you're not always getting the same team that you had the previous year. And it would be fantastic. But like this is my 15th year teaching and I had gotten in a really good what I thought was a really good um, sort of routine of units and lessons and things like that. And I got a new um, partner this year and she is not into the things that we've done in the past and I'm trying to be flexible. And so I'm coming up with new things all the time. And it's just not possible to communicate that kind of thing uh, ahead of time. Um, if it were, I would do it. But I think you are right. I think it's an inappropriate demand on teachers, um, given all the things that we are supposed to do, because gifted education is one of the many, many, many things that we are supposed to do during the day. Right. So you say, though, that if you could, you would do it. Do you think in general that parents desire to know what's going on in a classroom uh, is overall for the good? Is that something that that you think in the end helps make education better? 
Sure, of course. I mean, you know, we're always saying, oh, we want to be partners with the parents. And, you know, I am team leader this year. I think so we, I parents send just out- assume that's bullshit. Is that not bullshit? <laughs> It is not bullshit. Like, it really is. I really do want to partner with the parents. um, Or I guess I guess I want them to partner with me, if we're being specific. Um, (laughs) Because there are, you know, 110 families, and there's there's me teaching their kid English, you know. Um, So I, you know, I, I send out the weekly email to the parents. And I include, you know, I talk to the science teacher and the social studies teacher and the math teacher. And I include what we're doing in each of our classes. Um, and it's like, this is what we worked on this past week. And this is what we're going into. Um, and I, and if, you know, what I want parents to do is say, hey, I heard you were learning about, you know, Greek roots. So which ones did you learn and what did they mean? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but to know, you know, ahead of time what the whole semester is going to be, that's just not not going to happen. Do your do parents at your school have that app where they can see all the assignments and the homework and what's due and what their kids have turned in and stuff? So we have um, a homework page where we put up what the homework is every day. Um, and... In addition to that, we have an, yeah, a system called PowerSchool, which is where the parents can get login information and they can sign in 24 hours a day and see what their kids' grades are and what assignments are missing or turned in. And so they, yeah, they can check in anytime. I just have, it's it still is astonishing to me. I'm still getting used to this idea that, that parents know to this sort of level of granular detail what is going on in their kids' classroom. And I can't yet, I have not yet figured out how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Like in some ways I feel incredibly grateful that if Lyra is falling behind, we have a mechanism to see that and we're not dependent on, you know, a grade coming through three months from now that is way worse than we thought it should be. At the same time, it means that it's like designed to make parents intervene at every point that performance is dipping below, you know, some expected platonic ideal level of performance at school, which strikes me as I worry that that's like too much, that it's too much to, to for parents to be chiming in instantly as soon as a kid doesn't turn in one thing. And that it means that the kid never like – gets a bad like suffers a bad grade as a result of something they did or i mean i guess eventually they'll suffer bad grades regardless but like do you worry that that parents being this involved means that kids are going to have trouble figuring out how to solve these problems on their own yes i you know one of the things that i said at curriculum night at the beginning of the school year was i said please please if it's appropriate you know, provide appropriate supports, but sometimes if it's appropriate, let your kid fail because getting a bad grade. Did, did everyone school, gasp? <laughs> people <yeah>. were like, oh, what? <laughs> no, I think most people were like, okay, because the thing is getting a bad grade on a middle school report card is, is not the end of the world, but it is a natural right. consequence for you know, not doing your homework or not studying. And if they learn that, you know, what that natural consequence feels like now, I think that it'll make a difference 
in the future and that they're less likely to let that happen on their own. Whereas like what you said, if they're missing, you know, a, you know, five point homework assignment and mom or dad swoops in, it's it's providing them a a safety net that I don't think is necessary or appropriate. Right. Like if you're going to be a safety net, be a safety net junior year in high school when right. when there are like real consequences. Exactly. This this <laughs> this C in, you know, middle school language arts is not going to keep them from getting into college. But it might help them develop the study skills that they need to to get into college. I think the thing that really chafed me at this meeting, and if anyone, if any of you parents who are at this meeting are listeners, I'm sorry. I'm sure I'm not referring specifically to you. It was the, the person sitting <laughs> next to you. Uh, but uh, is I just really got this this impression off everyone that that they were the customers and they expected a certain level of service from the school and they could not believe that the school was not delivering the proper level of service to them, uh, you know, which I'm sure must be like incredibly annoying to encounter when you're a teacher and administrator. In other respects, I have to imagine that 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 kind of expectation has the power to make schools better. Like if schools don't feel accountable at all to the parents, obviously that's no good either. But do you do you sometimes get that vibe or do teachers or administrators at your school get that vibe from parents that like they that well we we paid our taxes for this school and moved to this neighborhood so we should be getting the best. Yeah. I mean Definitely, I think that a partnership with the parents is a valuable thing, and I think that being accountable to parents, it can be a very good thing. But I do think that there has been this shift to a customer for a customer service orientation that does not really make sense in this context. Um, and I think that parents, even well-meaning ones, have expectations of what teachers can do in the time that they're given that are unreasonable. So, you know, we're expected to differentiate for these um, special ed kids. We're expected to uh, differentiate for these AIG kids, these academically gifted kids. Um, We're expected to do all of these things and a million more. And it's, it's just not possible when, you know, I have to leave it to 245 is the end of my con- contract day and I have to go pick up my own kid. It's just, I so think it's, it's useful, I think, for parents to remember that teachers are not intentionally leaving you out of the loop, but exactly. are just as busy as you or maybe just even more. Right. Totally. Yeah. Uh, well, this is all really interesting. Um, I'm happy to know that I was correct for standing up and making a big show of leaving because I'm a here an American hero. Um, totally correct. And yeah, I, but, you know, I, and I tell parents, I say, you know, if you ha- if you have a question, you know, definitely send me an email. I will get back to you. But I can't let you know every time your kid fails a test. I can't let you t- know every time your kid was chewing gum in class. You know, that kind of thing, like minor infractions right. or you know, failed tests, things like that. Uh, all right. So parents, please, um, please be gentle to your teachers. It's a good reminder that being in the loop is helpful in a lot of ways, but demanding to know every single detail of what's going on in the classroom is not only impossible, but not really actually all that great for your kid. Um, so 
take a chill pill. Uh, but we want to hear from you listeners. Do you like being in the loop? Do you, would you wish your teachers communicated more? Do you have teachers who actually don't communicate at all and you're struggling to find a way to get them to reach out even a little? Do you wish they communicated less as I sometimes do? Uh, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting and let us know. All right, let's move on to recommendations. I'm going to start with my recommendation, Amy. Uh, I am recommending this week a great piece on Slate.com, the website where I work. Uh, It's in the Slate Book Review. It's by our our critic Laura Miller about a book that many listeners probably remember from their own childhoods. Amy, I want to know if you remember it from yours. Island of the Blue Dolphins by Scott O'Dell. Was that a favorite? Never read it. What? You're fired. I know. Uh, I got lots of answers, Drew. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I love the Blue Dolphins taught you nothing about how to use a mattress. Um, so there's a new reader's edition out from uh, University of California Press of this uh, classic that first came out in 1960. The stories inside this book are fascinating, and Laura Miller talks about them in this piece. Um, how the book got written in the first place, how Odell fought people at the publishing house who wanted him to make the character a boy, um, how the book has sort of weathered the storms over recent decades of issues of representation for people of Native heritage and and the ability or rights of white people to write those kinds of stories, um, and at, at the center of it, the actual true story of a Native woman who was fucking lost on an island off the coast of California for like decades. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. It brought home uh, to me some really interesting stuff I hadn't thought about about this book that was a classic for literally every child in America except for Amy Scott. Uh, the piece is called <laughs> Island of the Blue Dolphins and the Dream of Loneliness. We will post a link to it on our show page and on our Facebook page. All right. What are you recommending, Amy? I'm going to recommend a movie called The Incredibles. <laughs> Perfect. Um, all kidding aside, I mean, it is a great, great movie. It is, it's tightly written. It's funny. The voice actors are amazing. It has Craig T. Nelson, Holly Hunt, Sarah Val, Jason Lee, and a small part by the incomparable Wallace Shawn. It has good lessons, I think. It has women and girl characters who do stuff. Um, there are a couple of parts that tweak me a little, um, you know, Violet, the daughter gets, gets the boy after she quote unquote changes. It's a bit Sandy and Grace, but the change is that she's, you know, she's legitimately developed confidence in herself outside of her relationship with the boy. So I go to pass and it is kind of shockingly violent, uh, lots of fighting and gun battles and spoiler, the bad guy gets sucked into a propeller by his cape, but Patrick loves it. I love it. And I can empty the dishwasher with both hands while he's watching it. And there's a sequel the coming out in 2018, yeah. so Very maybe soon. that'll be that. Maybe that'll be Patrick and Arlo's first uh, movie theater experience. I don't know. We'll see. That movie is going to be really loud, so just be ready. Uh, another great thing about The Incredibles is that uh, that movie is a licensed babysitter in 43 states. <laughs> All it's right, like that's CPR our show. Worse and everything. That's right. It's, it can do anything. Uh, that's our show. <laughs> Remember, if you like mom and dad are fighting, tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a friend of me, tell a neighbor to me. Uh, also, like our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash mom and dad are fighting. Email us at mom and dad at slate.com if you have questions or suggestions for future topics or guests that you would like us to interview. Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. You can see our full roster of shows at iTunes.com/slash Panoply. 
Thank you to Allison Benedict for holding down the fort on Slate.com's election coverage. Thanks to our producer, Zach Dinerstein, the executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, and El Mayor Del Panoply, Andy Bowers. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you next time.